you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. In, in the Bible, there's a, a, a lot of ideas or, or concepts that are made really clear to us, and one of them that's really radically clear from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible is that God sovereignly orchestrates the things that happen in our lives and in the world around us to fulfill His purposes for His glory. And so the Proverbs say that when the dice or the lots are cast, that God knows the outcome. He determines the outcome. That when it rains, it's because God told the rain to fall. That he keeps lightning in his storehouses for when he tells the lightning to strike. That that he gives life and brings death according to his timing and his purposes. God knows the number of hairs on your head because he put them there and he cares about you. And so for Christians in the room, this idea that God is sovereignly orchestrating and in control of all things, it's actually something that we should take a lot of comfort in. There's a few reasons for that. The first is the character of God means that that's good news for us. God is supremely good. He's supremely powerful. And so if he is the one entrusted with the orchestration of all the workings of the universe, that's a lot better news than those things being left to the randomness of biological or chemical chance or to the will of sinful and finite people, right? God being in control is far better. And the second reason we should take comfort in that is because What's clear in the scriptures is that God's orchestration of all things is not without consideration of his beloved people. And so, in fact, we see this in Genesis when God, the first time God does something, he makes everything. And then what does he do with it after he's made things happen? He gives it to people as a blessing. Right? It's a gift and a blessing. So when God does things, he's doing it for our good. That He's doing it so that we can experience him. And this is really clearly expressed in Romans 8.28, which is also a letter written by the Apostle Paul, like the book of Philippians. And in 8.28 of Romans, Paul famously says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And so the sovereign decrees of God are never in opposition to or in conflict with the loving will that God has toward his people. And so when God causes things to happen, those things are actually working together for good for those who have put their faith in him. So your circumstances this morning, regardless of what they are, they're not an accident. And if they're undesirable to you or if they seem unpleasant to you, they're not the evidence of the negligence or distance of God toward you or in your life. Your circumstances are actually the handiwork of God. Your circumstances are the handiwork of God. But hear this. If you're a child of God in the room, you are among his most prized pieces of workmanship. Ephesians 2 tells us that after Paul lays out this expression of the gospel and us coming into life through faith in Christ, he says, for you are God's workmanship. And the word there in the Greek that is translated workmanship is actually the the word from which we derive the word poem, right? So if you're a Christian in the room, you're God's poetry. You're this precious and mysterious thing that was created out of the loving heart of God to to do his purposes and to experience good, right? And so 
I say all of this because Paul is writing Philippians chapter 1 from prison in Rome. So he's clearly feeling this kind of deep and gut-wrenching anxiety stemming from his circumstances, particularly his nearness to death, and his circumstances are outwardly miserable. They're dismal. They're desperate. None of us would want to trade Paul for what he was experiencing when he wrote Philippians 1, and this is what he says in verse 12. Like, hear this. Out of those circumstances, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being imprisoned and suffering has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he says, I want you to know, brothers, that God put me in prison for a reason. My circumstances are the handiwork of God so that he can advance his good news through my imprisonment. Like now now that I'm in prison, the prison guards are aware that Christ is the God King and not Caesar. Some of them have believed in Christ, and and the Philippians would be well acquainted with this because one of their first members of the Philippian church was a a jailer from the jail in Philippi that Paul was imprisoned in, and, and Paul showed him the gospel, right? And so, so he's saying... My imprisonment is actually being used for the work of the ministry. He says, you know, they they put me in prison to shut me up and to stifle the advance of the gospel. But what's actually happened is that the Christians in Rome and the surrounding regions who have heard about my imprisonment have actually realized that I'm rejoicing in my suffering, that I'm still doing the work of ministry behind bars. And so none of them are afraid to be arrested too. And so they're even more to pro- bold to proclaim the truth about Jesus. And so Paul is in this miserable circumstance and he's not complaining. He's not whining. He's hurting and tired and weak and mistreated, and he's still not bemoaning the workings of God in his life to force him into such a situation. He doesn't say, God, why would you do this to me? He doesn't write to the Philippians and say, can you believe that that I've been faithful and this is how God's rewarded me? I mean, I I say that because those are the kinds of prayers that I've been praying recently in, in suffering. And some of Paul's language in this passage, it's reminiscent of the language in the book of Job that Job is using when he's standing before God in all of his suffering and his trial. And, and what becomes clear when you read the letters of Paul is that he has this profound theology of suffering to give to the church. And it's rooted both in his understanding of suffering out of the Old Testament, primarily Job, and the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he's taking what we know about suffering from Job, like this human suffering in light of a sovereign God in a sinful world, and the suffering of Christ that is glorious and redemptive. And so he develops this beautiful theology of suffering. But what he also has is an extraordinary theology of time and place. And we should learn from Paul in this. He sees that God has put him where he has put him in the time in which he has put him there for a reason, for the purposes of God and his kingdom. He knows, he, he knows that that's not only true for him, but it's true for those around him. It's true for the prison guards. 
right, that God's put the prison guards to be his prison guards so that maybe they might hear the good news of the gospel. We, we can see this in Acts when Paul is speaking to people in Athens, non-Christians in Athens, and he says this, he, he being God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. And then he presents the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul says, like, God, from one man made everyone to live all over the world in these different nations, and, and they're there in the time and the place that they're there because God has put them there, and they're all seeking for God, and actually what he sent the church to do is to tell them that God is not far from them. And so, so if God has put Paul in prison, then he figures that the prison guards near to he, need to hear that while they've been seeking God, that God is actually near to them in the person and work of Jesus. So for Paul, prison and suffering, it, it's not a plight to be begrudging toward, but it's an opportunity to join God in the work of redemption. Paul sees this not as, as mere Christian duty, but as the most joyful and pleasant existence available this side of eternity. Elsewhere, he's writing to pastors in, an, in another letter, and he says, shepherd the flock of God among you willingly, not under compulsion. Right, And so there's this theme in Paul of like, don't do the work of ministry because you have to do the work. Do the work of ministry because you want to do the work and, and because you've counted it all joy, like Paul, for the sake of knowing Christ with the hope of future and glory in mind. The ministry of gospel is something that Paul knows is going to be hard. He knows it might cause suffering. He knows it might have sent him to prison. He knows it might lead to his death. And he's counting it all joy for the sake of knowing Christ. So church, the Christian life is hard. It's just hard. But it's the best life possible. Right? It's, it's maybe the hardest life possible, and it's the best life possible. If lived faithfully, the Christian life will absolutely result in your hardship. And this is why we need a good understanding of the heavenly things that await us. Right, Because we can endure momentary suffering because endless rest and peace and joy await us. Like Paul says that elsewhere. He says, like, I can endure this momentary suffering because I know about the future glory. I know about the things to come. He tells the Colossians to set their minds on things above because if they're setting their minds on the things in the present, the things on earth, they'll be endlessly discouraged. But when they look to the heavenly things where God is, who loves them, cares for them, and is preparing an eternal home for them, then they'll be able to press on. This is the gift um, that we're taught through weekly Sabbath. Um, over the last year, Anna and I have begun trying to be a lot more disciplined about practicing like a proper Sabbath. On Saturdays, we just don't do any work. We don't clean. We don't make big plans. We try not to use our phones. And, and what that means is that on Saturdays, like we really rest the way that God intended us to rest. And it means when our weeks are full and hard and consumed with work and ministry and the messiness of the lives of people around us, we can have a really hard Wednesday and say, but we know Saturday's coming. 
right? Like I can work really hard today. I can be exhausted today because rest is on the horizon, right? And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is actually the true Sabbath for the people of God, that he is the, the embodiment of Sabbath and that eternity with him is an eternal Sabbath. And so that what that means is that we can, throughout our days, weeks, decades, until we die, work hard in this life for the glory of God, expending every ounce of energy we have, every ounce of love we have, all of the good works that we can muster by the power of the Spirit of God within us, because endless rest and restoration awaits us. Right? Otherwise, it would be futility. Otherwise, it would be discouraging. But we can just lay it all out there because we know that there's future glory waiting. But hear this, there's not only hope in the future for us as Christians in this life. There's not only hope that like, okay, the Christian life's going to be hard. It might be miserable at times. You might suffer. And, but, you know, there's always heaven, right? Like that's, that's not the fullness of what the Bible has for us either. It's actually that, that when we endure hardship in a life of faithfulness to God, this, this is the place that the scriptures make clear where God meets his people the most. Right, Psalm 123, where is the table set before, before David? It's in the valley of the shadow of death in the presence of his enemies. That's where God sets a table for him. That's where he meets him, feasts with him, nourishes him, makes promises to him. And so f- for, for us to experience the fullness of God's grace, we're going to need to be brought at times to places where we recognize how dependent we are on the grace of God. And so he gives grace to us when? When we're humbled. Humbled by our circumstances. Humbled by the messiness of life. Humbled by the recognition of our failures and our sins. And that's when God gives grace to us. Not when we're proud. Not when we're doing well. It's, it's God gives grace to the humble. So this is the kind of stuff that Paul's holding on to from his prison cell in Rome. He knows this, that God's chosen method of redeeming the world is suffering. God's chosen method for redeeming the world is suffering. He knows this primarily because he's seen Jesus, right? The joyful suffering of Jesus Christ has led to the redemption of all mankind and the fullness of the cosmos. And so for Paul to suffer in prison is a chance for just in some way, even if it's a small way, to be like Christ and depend on Christ. He tells Timothy in another letter that that though he's in chains in Rome, the word of God is not in chains, right? And so if that's true for him, it's certainly true for us, right? Consider your circumstances. The word of God is not bound in chains in your workplace or on your block or in your home. It is free to be proclaimed. See, God has put you where he has put you at the time he has put you there to join him in the work of redemption. So wherever you are in life, right here and right now, God has put you there to join him in the work of redemption. He's surrounded you with men and women and children in time and space who need to know that God has drawn near to them through Jesus Christ. And so if you're suffering this morning, it's not that God has forgotten you or spurned you. No, it's actually that God is drawing very, very near to you. 
He's showing you the depths of his love. He's inviting you to trust him more, to lean on him more, to experience and participate with him in the glories of Christ's suffering. And he's setting a table before you, not a table just for future feasting in the kingdom of heaven, but for present feasting in the valley of the shadow of death. So when your circumstances are dire, it's actually then that you're most like Christ. Like consider him in Gethsemane before his arrest or at Calvary on the cross. Like suffering is when we're most like Christ. And what does Christ do in his suffering? He shows the world the love and the mystery of God's redemption. Paul tells the church in, in Corinth in another letter that, that inasmuch as we suffer with Christ, so to whatever degree you suffer, no matter how desperate, dire, uh, unbearable it is, it is to that degree that God will comfort us through Christ. And so there's no amount of suffering that you can endure in this world that God will look at and say, I guess I can't rise to that occasion to comfort them. It's that to the degree that we suffer, it's to that degree that we experience the comfort of God. And so actually what that means is that there is grace from God in allowing us to hurt and need him. Because it's when we're hurting and need him that that he pours out his comfort on us. We experience him more. I want to skip ahead to verse 18. The second half of verse 18, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul has this resolution to rejoice. It's a moral and ethical conviction for Paul to rejoice, that Christians ought to rejoice. He rejoices not knowing whether he's going to live or die. He rejoices regardless of his circumstance because he is sure that Christ will be honored in his body. Whether he lives or whether he dies, he knows that there's some way in which that's going to be honoring to God, that that's going to bring glory to Christ, that God is working things together for good. See, that confidence in that verse from Romans 8.28, it's a verse that we can kind of turn into this like coffee cup verse that just like is devoid of meaning, but actually it's so deep in meaning that in the depths of suffering, God has actually been orchestrating things for good. He knows, Paul knows that he will experience deliverance. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. It might be through his death and it might be through release from prison, but he's sure he's going to be delivered. And here, one of the mechanisms by which Paul has made sure that he's going to be delivered, the prayers of the Philippians. Right Through your prayers and the work of the Spirit of Jesus, I'll be delivered. And so when your brothers and sisters are suffering, pray for them because that might lead to God delivering them. It actually becomes a, an integral piece in God's deliverance when we pray for one another. Your prayers are powerful. The passage comes to this climax in verse 21. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In this short sentence, Paul gives us a well of perspective. Uh, and it's really a well of perspective that saturated the entire Christian ethos for the last 2,000 years. Like this has kind of been the bedrock of, of all, 
all of the church's mission is that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So the Christian life is a life of service to Christ, a life of union with Christ. It is impossible to describe life apart from describing the one in whom our life is found. Right? That's what Paul is saying, is that, that I can't even tell you what life is apart from the one in whom my life is found. And so to live is Christ. He is life. I've become a member with him, a participant in him. I've become united to Christ in such a way that, that for a life to find any meaning apart from serving him, enjoying him, following him, and proclaiming him is to abandon the meaning of life altogether. Right? So... Since people were created, they've been asking, what's the meaning of life? Paul answers it in Philippians 1, 21. It's Christ. He's the meaning. He is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, the King of everything. And if you don't have him, you don't have life. To live is Christ. Which means Christ is to live. To, to be united to Christ is to live. Through him we have life, and that life has meaning and purpose beyond compare. To live is Christ. But then he says to die is gain. And that needs some explanation, right? Uh, luckily, Paul explains. He goes on. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So life in Christ and with Christ is good. Paul's clearly affirmed that. Life in Christ and with Christ is good, but it's difficult. And so in the midst of this hardship and this suffering, Paul rejoices and presses on, seeking to obtain, like he says elsewhere, by any means necessary, the resurrection of the dead. Meaning that Paul's going to press on in, in joyful suffering, seeking by any means necessary to experience more of Jesus, to experience more of the power of the resurrection, to just give Get to know him more, to be like him more, to do things that, that unite him to him more. But it's hard and it's full of suffering. And in his current situation, he sees that death has its appeals. Right? This isn't a suicide warning from Paul. He's not mentally ill. He's just acknowledging that if he died, he would be with Christ in glory and he would be free from the pains of this world in his chains and imprisonment. In other words, Paul is just admitting, right now, death would be a lot easier than life. But Paul knows that easy isn't the way of the kingdom of God. Easy isn't the way of the kingdom of God. He knows that God wants to use his people in the lives of others, right? Why is he remaining? Not for himself, not even for his edification, but for the Philippians, right? I know that it's necessary to live for your account, so God wants to use us in the lives of others to be instruments in the lives of others of God's redemption, proclamation of his love, often accomplished through suffering. And when we do this, we know what really matters, what it means to live. In Gethsemane on the night of Jesus' arrest, 
Jesus knew that judgment and death were, were near, right? He, he knew that he was about to absorb and endure the fullness of the sting of God's wrath in his crucifixion. And so he prayed anxiously that, that God would remove that cup from him. Right? He knew the, the ministry set before him, and he prayed that God would remove that cup from him. But he knew the will of God was to be done. Right, He knew that, that he was to be crushed so that our transgressions could be forgiven. And so he resolved with faith and joy to endure the suffering of death, not for himself, but for others. But I want you to notice the logical switch here, because there's tons of parallels between Paul's imprisonment and what he's saying here and Jesus in Gethsemane. Right? In, in Gethsemane, Jesus is praying what? That he wouldn't die. That would be less desirable than living, right? But, but because he did die, because he absorbed the sting of death on our behalf, it's now true that for faithful Christians, we will see death as the thing to be less anxious about than more life. And, and that's not because God has made life worse for Christians, in fact, he's made it abundantly better. It's just that, that God has, has, through Jesus Christ, turned the thing that is the most fearful possible thing in the human existence, death. And he's turned it gracefully, marvelously, and mysteriously into an entryway to endless rest and joy and peace. Like, like the mystery of the gospel is kind of revealed in this paradox that now to live is Christ but to die is gain. Can you imagine the kind of powerful work of redemption that must be possible for a, a statement like that to be true? I want to consider the heart of Paul in this passage because at Sojourn, we talk all the time about making disciples, right? We make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches. And we talk a lot about making disciples because it is the unequivocal call of the Christian life to make disciples, um, but sometimes I think we can talk about it like in the checklist of Christian duties, like at the top is make disciples, right? And like it's just this duty that we constantly need to be checking off to make disciples, that, that it should be done out of compulsion, out of, out of just mere obedience, out of just pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? But, but making disciples isn't mere duty. It's actually an invitation into real life. Like when God calls us to make disciples, he's inviting us to participate in the fullness of life, into doing the work of the kingdom of God. And, and hear this, if the work of making disciples doesn't compel you this morning, it, it's because the work of making disciples was never meant to compel you. Like God didn't say, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live really hard lives where you give everything you have to others and to me. You might suffer. You might be poor. You might be killed for it. You might be put in prison for it. Doesn't that sound good? No, like that's, that's not the point. It's not that making disciples is of itself the most compelling thing. It's that the love of God in Jesus Christ, the glorious nature of the king of the universe, expressing his love to us, forgiving our sins, inviting us into union with him, compels us such that whatever he calls us to do seems immeasurably better than anything else. Right, Paul? Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about the ministry of reconciliation, like the call of the church to be ministers of reconciliation. And what does he say compels us? He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Not, not the appeal of the work. It's the love of Christ that compels us. 
Because Paul knows that he's a God who so deeply loves you. He's a, he's a God who so deeply loves you in the whole world that he gave up everything in, in order to invite you into forgiveness and life for eternity. He's a king who owns everything, and yet he gives it to you and me as an inheritance forever. He's a morally perfect God of salvation who sees us in all of our failures, all of our weakness, all of our filth, and he draws near to us and calls us friends. He looked at us knowing that we deserve death, judgment, exile forever, and he came and he took it for us. And so the key to Paul's joy and ministry and life is not a sense of duty or his desire to do what is right. It's, and this is something I need to remember because I often live my life in categories of should and should nots, right? If there's any Enneagram ones out there, you understand. But what compels Paul is that Paul came face to face with Jesus, right? In the the midst of his sin, in the midst of opposing God as an enemy, and he came face to face with Jesus, saw the glory of the resurrection, the availability of the forgiveness of sin apart from any work of our own. And he said, if that's available, if, if that's true, if that man really is inviting me to participate, then I'll do whatever it takes to be a part of it. Not, not because I have to earn it, but because it actually it's been bought all for me. I've been invited into it gracefully. And so this morning, if the work of ministry doesn't compel you, and when I say ministry, I don't mean like becoming a pastor or working at a church. I just mean like going to your job and understanding that the people in your workplace are seeking God and that you can tell them that he's drawn near to them in Jesus. That that's true for your neighbors. If that doesn't compel you, then I'm not going to invite you to look at more strategies for evangelists. I'm going to invite you to look at Jesus. Gaze upon him this morning, throughout the week. Spend time with him. Read your Bible. Read about him and his love and the things that he says and the things that he's invited you into, the things he's accomplished for you. Pray to him. Ask him to open your heart more to see the beauty of his love for you. Ask other people who seem to know him about their experience with following him. Even if you've been following Jesus for 10 years, like invest in that. Like gaze upon him because it's the love of Christ that will compel you to live a life that's worth living and that's when you can truly say to live as Christ and to die as gain. When the reality of God's love for you, when the majesty of King Jesus is revealed to you, you will have life. You'll have it in the present regardless of whatever your circumstances are, regardless of how hard it might be, and you'll have it in the future for eternity, experiencing union and life with Christ forever. And so... Whether you've never trusted in Jesus this morning or whether you've known him virtually your whole life, just gaze upon him. Be compelled by his love for you because he has done everything so that you can know that, that everything that is orchestrated in the universe, it's actually an act of love toward you and toward his people. And so let us live with Christ and for Christ and to Christ for all our days because he's all. He's all there is. He's the only truly precious thing. He's our hope, our king, our savior, our friend. There's nothing more than him. To live is Christ because Christ is life. So let's pray and let's feast 
whether you feel like you are in the midst of the heavenly places this morning in your circumstances or you're in the valley of the shadow of death, God has set a table for you this morning. So let's pray and then let's feast. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would show us your beauty. Like Moses and Elijah just begged you, they said, show me your glory. Well, we've seen it in the risen Jesus. And if, if, if there are men and women in the room who haven't seen it, would you show it to them by the power of your spirit through the proclamation of your word that you have died and risen again so that they might experience the fullness of heavenly things both now and forevermore? Would you compel us by your love to serve you and live for you and, and know that, that that's the only life worth living? Even as we feast this morning, would you nourish us and sustain us and energize us for the work ahead? Would you give us a heart like Paul's who, where we rejoice in suffering? 